If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This is not a a sort of celebration of freedom. This is a celebration of revenge. They're literally celebrating by taking their revenge on this slightly unfortunate woman. That was Keith Lowe discussing some of the more unpleasant aspects of the aftermath of the Second World War in a lecture that he gave at our History Weekend in October. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. And for those of you with a Kindle Fire, I should mention that that edition is now available in the United States as well. For details of all of these digital formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. So this is our first History Extra podcast of 2014. I hope you've all had a good Christmas break. For this week's edition, we'll be taking you back to October and our History Weekend Festival that took place over three days in Malmesbury. To packed lecture halls, some of Britain's finest historians gave a series of stimulating talks on a whole range of topics from ancient Egypt to the Cold War. In today's episode, we're going to be broadcasting the lecture given by Keith Lowe, who took for the theme of his talk the subject of his most recent book, Savage Continent, Europe in the Aftermath of World War II. Thank you for for coming. There's a lot of you here today. I'm here to talk to you about the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, It's a huge subject, um, so I I think probably all I can do today is give you a bit of a a snapshot of what Europe looked like after the war was supposed to be over. I'd also like to talk to you a little bit about the way that we um, the way that we view the end of the war, because I think we, as a nation, have a, have a slightly odd way of looking at it. Um, you know, if you go across to, to Europe, they, they see things very differently, for example. I think, I think really, that we tend to have a sort of very cosy idea of what the end of the world war looked like. Um, uh, and I, I, I'm one of those sort of um, unpleasant people who likes to take a cosy idea and stick pins in it and see, watch it deflate, you know. So what are these cosy ideas? What, what are the sort of images which come to mind when you think of the end of the war? I've got some pictures, which I, I can show you, which are the sort of things which, I, I suppose when I originally approached this subject, these were the images which came to mind for me. Yeah, here we go. This is Buckingham Palace, May 1945, VE Day. You can see this. It's crowds of people waving flags and cheering and uh, generally celebrating the end of the war. This is 
This is an image of a nation unified in, in celebration of victory. Lovely, isn't it? What a wonderful picture. Here we have another delightful picture of uh, people celebrating again. This is the Champs-Élysées in Paris. People walking arm in arm down, down, the, down the road. Again, they're waving flags. You can see most of them are French flags, but they've also got uh, stars and stripes there. And just, you can see just on the left-hand side, there's a, there's a Union Jack there as well. So this is, this is more of a sort of symbol of international unity. This is the Allies all coming together. We've won the war. Hooray, isn't everything great? Um, if you have a sort of more romantic frame of mind, you might think of uh, an image like this. <laughs> Most famous of them all, this is actually not VE Day, this is VJ Day, but there were very similar pictures taken in New York's Times Square on VE Day as well. Here we have this man. He's been fighting for six long years, but he's finally won, and to top it all, he even gets the girl. So it's a nice sort of Hollywood ending to the war. It's a sort of very cosy, um, reassuring picture of what the world looks like after the Second World War is supposed to be over. Um, this is the point where traditionally in histories of the war we'd say, and they all lived happily ever after. But of course, if I really thought that the end of the war looked like this, I wouldn't have written my book, I wouldn't be here talking to you today, because, um, of course, people did celebrate, they did have a big party, but when they woke up the next morning, they had probably the biggest hangover in history. Um, because, you know, life didn't just go back to normal, just because the war was over. There was no happily ever after. There was just a big mess which needed tidying up. And what a mess it was. Um, in fact, it was such a mess, it really took um, British and American officials who went across to Europe after the, uh, after the war, took them completely by surprise. I mean, they, they were kind of expecting the devastation when they got there to look a little bit like things here in Britain. You know, we'd been bombed during the Blitz. Hamburg, Dresden, Berlin. It would all look a little bit like, you know, um, Birmingham or London or, or, or Glasgow. But of course it didn't. It, uh, it looked a bit more like this. This is Hamburg in 1945. Now, um, as you can see, the damage here is way beyond anything that happened in Britain. I mean, actually, during the Blitz, most of the bombing was relatively piecemeal. Sort of a house here, a house there, a street here, maybe a street there. And even areas that had been quite badly damaged. You still had buildings standing, some of them intact and so on. But here, well, the, the entire landscape has been levelled by, by the bombing in Hamburg. Um, if you like statistics, uh, which I'm one of those geeks who does, then I can tell you that 200,000 homes in Britain were destroyed by the German Blitz. Now, in, in, um, in Germany, it was more like 3.6 million. So just in purely numerical terms, the damage in Germany was 18 times as bad as it was here. Now, British officials just weren't prepared for sites like this when they got over. And, you know, they'd seen photos, but somehow it didn't prepare them for the, for the actual experience of going across to Europe. And, um, you know, their, their sense of shock really shines through in the, the um, letters they wrote home at the time, the diary entries and so on that they made. Um, I'm going to read you a, 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 a um, diary entry by a man called Philip Dark, a, a British lieutenant, who drove through this city 
on the 7th of May, 1945. He says, we swung in towards the center and started to enter a city devastated beyond all comprehension. It was more than appalling. As far as the eye could see, square mile after square mile of empty shells of buildings with twisted girders scarecrowed in the air, radiators of a flat jutting out from a shaft of a still-standing wall like a crucified pterodactyl skeleton, horrible, hideous shapes of chimneys sprouting from the frame of a wall, the whole pervaded by an atmosphere of ageless quiet. Such impressions are incomprehensible unless seen. So this is the sort of feeling that people get. You know, he says they're incomprehensible unless seen. It doesn't matter how much you describe it or, or how many photos you see. Um, you, you can't really appreciate the horror unless you're there standing it amongst, amongst the ruins yourself. And you've got to remember, this is, this is just Hamburg. I mean, <coughs> hundreds of cities across Europe were devastated just as badly, if not worse. Warsaw, for example, was systematically destroyed street by street, house by house, until there was you know, 90% of the city was razed deliberately. So um, amongst all this physical destruction, you also, of course, had plenty of human destruction. We in Britain, again, got off relatively lightly. We had about uh, 300,000 people, British people, were killed by the war, which is a horrendous number. But compared to what happened on the continent, it really is, is nothing. I mean, in Germany, about 6 million people were killed, which was 8% of the German population. In Poland, another 6 million were killed, which was 16% of their population. So that's, that's one in six Poles were killed by the war. And then you get across to the Soviet Union and numbers are anything up to 27 million, which is something so vast that you, you, you can't really comprehend figures like that. And you have to remember that these people were not just soldiers who were being killed. I mean, that's one of the, the really terrible things about this, the Second World War was that civilians, more civilians were killed than soldiers were. So these weren't just young men of fighting age. These were women and children and old people as well. Everybody in Europe had lost somebody to the war. Um, you know, some people had lost not only their brothers and their sisters and their fathers and their aunts, but also their cousins and their friends and so on. I mean, I, I interviewed one man for the book who um, had lost 55 members of his extended family in Poland. He actually didn't bother going back to Poland after the war because there was no point. There was nobody there to <coughs> greet him. Now, to make things worse, if you like to make things worse, um, nobody was in their right place after the end of the war. I mean, when I, when, I think, when I think of what the population of Europe looked like after the war, the, the image I always get is of this game that my big brother used to play with me when I was a child. He, he was a typical big brother. He would he'd get a pack of cards and he'd say, do you want to play Russian pickup? And I'd say, oh, yes, I'll play Russian pickup. And he'd throw them across the floor and say, Russian pick that up then. <laughs> so it wasn't funny then and it's not funny now, but imagine you know, me as a five-year-old having to deal with a big brother like that. But the point is that the, the image that I have is of that pack of cards. I mean, the, the population of Europe had been picked up and cast across the continent. So you've got refugees, people who fled their homes because uh, they're trying to escape from the violence or the bombs and, and so on. 
You've got people who've been deliberately kidnapped from Eastern Europe, who've been taken to Germany to work as forced labourers. Um, you've got people expelled from their homes or their countries even um, by the invading occupiers, whichever ones are in the area at the time. So you, you've got a situation at the end of the war where in Germany alone, there are 18 million refugees of different descriptions knocking around Germany, sort of with, with nowhere really to go. What did these people look like? Well, if you believe the fairy story, you know, the ha nice happy ending, they look like this. This is a, a, a photograph of Dachau um, when it was liberated at the end of April 1945. Uh, look at, again, you have smiling people waving their caps. You know, this is a happily ever after picture. They've been liberated, everything's now going to be fine. I have to say, when I first saw this picture, I was slightly suspicious of it because you know, th these, are, these are some of the most traumatised people on the planet. They've, they've been incarcerated for years. They've witnessed daily extreme violence. You know, I've, got, I've got no doubt that on the day they might have been celebrating just as everybody else in Europe. But uh, you know, if this photo had been taken the day after or the week after, would they really still be smiling? I... Uh, I went to the United Nations archive to dig out pictures of displaced persons after the war. Um, and there are hundreds of them there. Some of them are in the book. But I have to say there were precious few pictures of people smiling at all. Actually, the, the expression on people's faces is usually one of sort of grim determination. Um, I have another picture which is a possibly more representative um, these are Polish people who've been expelled from the eastern part of Poland, which is now Ukraine. And as you can see, you know, not, not a lot of smiles there. There's um, <coughs> exhaustion, there's determination. There's, you know, most of them are pretty miserable. Um, I have another picture. These are Greek men who have been slave labourers in Germany during the war. And... Um, this is May 1945. They've been brought back to Athens on a ship. They're just here at the docks. And it's, it's this, this man in the, in the, on the right-hand side that really makes this photo, I think. Look at his face. He's not, he's not celebrating the fact the war is over. All he can think about is what he's lost during the war. Now, I kind of think that a, gives a much more representative picture of, the, of the, the atmosphere, of the emotions that were going around Europe after the war was over. Um, right, so I've given you some general photos. I, I, want to, I want to sort of draw things together by telling you a story of a man that I interviewed for the book. Um, he was a Polish guy called Andre. He, uh, I interviewed him in, a, in a, a little room above a church in West London where he told me about um, what, what life looked like to him as a nine-year-old boy when he was liberated in Germany. He was kidnapped from Warsaw as a, as a child with his mother, and they were taken to this place near, near Dresden, a farm where he had to work until the war was over. Um, now, come 1945, he's liberated. Um, he can now do whatever he likes. They can go wherever they want. So they've got to make a decision. Where are they going to go? They don't really want to go back to Poland because it's Soviet-controlled, and they don't really trust the Soviets. So they start walking because at the moment they're in the Soviet-controlled part of Germany. So they start walking westwards. Their, their plan is they've got to get to 
wherever the Americans are. They trust the Americans. They think they'll be looked after by the Americans. So they start walking across Europe. They walk for about a month. And he, the stories he told me in this room, there were a sort of a stream of really strong images. Um, he said the first thing that he remembered was the, the huge crowds on the roads everywhere in Europe. It was like, it was like an ant's nest of people. Um, of all, all nationalities, Greeks, Italians, Poles, all heading in a thousand different directions. But people everywhere, the roads were really crowded. He said um, it was a really hungry time. If things had been bad during the war, you know, he hadn't been fed properly during the war. But now he had no food at all. He, had, uh, you know, he and his mother had to find food wherever they could, which generally meant you know, digging up potatoes from the side of the road or, or foraging Actually, I have a photo of that, uh, of some people. This is some people who are foraging for, according to the photographer, foraging for beech nuts, can you believe? Um, which I, I am slightly sceptical about, because that, that looks like a pine forest to me, but maybe, they're, maybe it's pine kernels they're after. Um, but anyway, regardless, it's a, it's a fairly desperate thing to have to do. Um, Andre said that... that he had this recurring sort of waking dream as he was staggering through Europe for this month um, of a big pile of mashed potatoes. That was the, the highest of the high, he said. A pile of steaming mashed potatoes with bacon on top. Couldn't think of anything better than that. <coughs> but instead, he's forced to do things like this, forage for scraps wherever he could. At every crossroads he came to, he said that there were lampposts and trees which were completely covered from top to bottom in these little squares of paper. Um, I actually have a, another picture of uh, something similar. This is a, the road out of Germany towards Poland. There's a fence, again, covered in these little pieces of paper. And what these little scraps of paper are, people who are heading back are writing their names and their destinations on this piece of paper in the hope that somebody, anybody, coming behind them might see their name and recognise them and know where it is they're headed to. It's, again, a fairly sort of desperate thing to do. He said there were also some really more gruesome sights he saw along the way. He, he, he told me this story about when they entered into this forest and came across a German field hospital that was, that was in, this, in these woods. And... He said the stench of this place was unbelievable. It was full of people, full of people with like their legs in wire cages where they're broken legs, arms again in wire cages, people bandaged completely from head to foot. But there was nobody there tending to them. All the, all the doctors and nurses and so on had, had fled, had run away and abandoned these people basically to die. So he said it was, you know, it smelled like they were, they were basically rotting alive, these people, completely abandoned. Another time... He said he came out of the woods and they came across a, a huge wide valley which was filled as far as the eye could see with German soldiers, um, which made him extremely nervous. But these weren't like soldiers on manoeuvres or anything. The, these were prisoners of war. Um, I have a, a picture. This is not, this is not exactly what uh, Andre saw because it's a little further west in, in West Germany. But... Here again, you can see tens of thousands of German soldiers, as far as the eye can see, the odd fire in between them, but no shelter otherwise. And these 
people are only guarded by a handful of uh, uh, American soldiers around the perimeter. They're just sort of sitting there. Um, can you imagine what that must have looked like to a nine-year-old boy? So anyway, they, they hurried away from this place as, as quickly as possible. And they carried on walking. They walked for a month, for 70 or 80 miles through the Sudetenland, in, into, finally arrived in Bavaria, where at last they found some kind of shelter in a, a UN, the United Nations, a displaced persons camp. And at last they were able to stop and somebody was you know, there to look after them. Now, what struck me when Andre was telling me this, these stories, sitting in this little room above the church hall, was the complete lack of any institutions that he met along the way. I mean, the reason he's walking in the first place is that there's no transport, there's no trains, everything's been bombed. So he's got no transportation to take him anywhere. There's no food distribution. There are no shops or businesses that are open along the way. There are no doctors or nurses, no policemen. You know, even when he comes across army people, it's, it's the odd private standing around a perimeter of a, 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 a sort of huge POW cage. There's nobody. He said it was a complete <coughs> vacuum. There was nobody there in charge of anything. It was only when he finally got to the United Nations that anybody was there to register him and feed him and give him a, a roof over his head, de-louse him all those sorts of things. It was only the UN who was able to take responsibility for this nine-year-old boy. So what happened next to Andre? Um, now that he's at the United Nations in this, uh, this displaced persons camp, can things go back to normal somehow? Can he get some of his, his normal life back? Yes but only up to a point. Um, he and his mother were, were put in a, a building which looked a bit like this. This is not the exact building, but it gives you a general idea of the state of housing in, in, in Europe, um, in, particularly in Germany uh, in, in May 1945. He had to share a room with about 20 or 30 other people. As you can see in that, um, I don't know, is the light shining on it? Can you see in that, in that hole in the wall, there are at least 20 people in there, probably more. And this is the general state of, of, of housing in, a, in a, a, a continent where there's precious little housing to go round. So what does he do now, this boy, this nine-year-old, um, now that he's somewhere safe? He does what all nine-year-old boys do. He goes out, finds some other nine-year-olds, and goes out to play. And what does he play with? Well, he plays with guns, of course. Not toy guns, but in his case, real ones. He said, nearby to his displaced persons camp, there was a, a, an ammunition dump, um, which was supposed to be guarded, but wasn't really. So he and his friends sneaked into this place, and they got themselves a Panzerfaust, which they then took out and, and spent an afternoon firing this thing across the valley and watching the explosions going off on the other side. Um, he said another time they found a, a, an, an unused artillery shell somewhere in the woods, what do you do with an unused artillery shell? You build a bonfire and put it on top, of course, and stand back to watch the explosion. And then he told me, he's full of these stories. He told me another story about, um, about finding a whole load of German machine gun ammunition, which he shoved into this metal stove, which he'd also found lying around, put some wood in, set fire to it, and then stood back to watch the bullets ping out of this thing in all directions. I mean... This is a nine-year-old boy who's, uh, who's playing with these things. I don't 
actually have a picture of Andre, unfortunately, because he was, he's quite a, quite a shy man and he didn't want a picture in the book. But I, I do have a picture of a nine-year-old boy, just to remind you. This is, uh, this is my son, Gabriel, who is nine. And when I told Gabriel about what Andre had been through when he was nine, you know, what he, all he could say was, he shot a bazooka? Cool! <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all nine-year-old boys are the same, I think. Um, the point is that I worry about this boy crossing the road by himself, let alone crossing a minefield, which is another thing which Andre did. He, he, t- he, he said he came across this fence, which was covered in signs saying, danger, minefield, do not cross. So he climbed over that and walked across the minefield because on the other side, there was a whole a load of raspberry bushes and uh, he wanted to go and pick the raspberries. He said they were the best raspberries he's ever tasted. I, th- I think that says something about the proximity of, of death. Maybe we should uh, do something similar when we, every time we go to a restaurant. Um, but again, you know, I, I, told, I, I told my son about this and all he could say was, yeah, a minefield, great, cool, wonderful. Um, what, I, what I didn't do, but what I probably, sh- I don't know, maybe I should have done, a bit undecided about this, is to tell him the story of another boy, another nine-year-old boy I came across and have a photo of. Um, this boy is a Yugoslav boy who, in May 1945, was playing near his home and uh, came across a landmine. And you can't see it here, but according to the photographer from the UN who took this picture... He's lost both his hands and his eyesight um, from the explosion. So that's a sort of snapshot of Europe in the aftermath of the war, as seen through the eyes of a a nine-year-old boy. And you can see it's not really the sort of place where a happily ever after is is really possible. It's a place, it's a a continent in chaos. It's a place with no institutions, nobody in charge. It's a place filled with displaced persons, with nowhere to go, traumatised people, um, and it's a place where weapons of all kinds are readily available, even to children. Anybody who thinks that the war was over in May 1945 needs only to look at pictures like this to see that on a personal scale, at least, it certainly wasn't over. The legacy of the war, particularly for boys like this, would last a lifetime. But there are plenty of other ways in which the war was not quite over in May 1945. Europe was filled with some very angry people at the time. Um, There were people who'd watched their communities torn apart. They had um, witnessed murder and other forms of violence, sometimes on a daily basis. And they were incensed by what had been done to them and to their communities. A lot of them wanted to get their own back. And so one of the first things which happened after the war was a wave of revenge which swept the continent. Do you remember these uh, smiling um, concentration camp inmates? This is Dachau, as I said, in uh, April 1945. This is is only one side of the coin, however, because there are other photos which were taken ostensibly on the same day, such as this one. These are some other uh, inmates of the same camp who are taking their revenge, um, according to the original legend, on a, on a camp guard. But he looks more like a, a camp capo to me, one of the other prisoners who's been 
you know, put in place as a stooge. Um, this is not a happily ever after picture. This is, this is a story of revenge. And actually, actually, now I come to think of it, it's, a, it's revenge in more ways than one because you see this wall behind, those things lined up sort of on the ground. In front of, those are dead bodies. Um, there was a, quite a famous incident at Dachau where um, American soldiers who were so incensed by what they had seen, they had uh, some German prisoners there and they, they shot them. Unfortunately, they weren't involved with the, the camp. They were, they were soldiers from elsewhere. So this picture represents kind of revenge in, on lots of different levels, from American soldiers, from the camp guards, and so on. It's not a pretty picture, but you know, in some ways, who can blame them after what they've been through? Who knows if we'd do anything different? Um, it wasn't only in places like uh, uh, concentration camps where revenge took place. Um, of course not. These are some Frenchmen. And they're not walking arm in arm down the Champs-Élysées and waving flags. They're, they're um, celebrating their liberation by beating up this collaborator. And here are some other Frenchmen. Not only Frenchmen, but also, as you can see, there are quite a lot of Allied soldiers in there as well. Um, they're watching this woman who has apparently slept with a, a, a German soldier during the war, and um, she's now having her head shaven as a, as a punishment. But you can see, look at, look at the crowds that have turned out for this, and all their faces, they're all smiling. There's a real carnival atmosphere here. This is not, this is not a, a sort of celebration of freedom. This is a celebration of revenge. They're literally celebrating by taking their revenge on this on this slightly unfortunate woman. I suppose what I'm trying to get at is that there's a lot of unfinished business at the end of the war. And the, the sort of biggest piece of unfinished business is this uh, universal desire for revenge and retribution in 1945. Now, if you think this is ugly, then I have to say it's nothing compared to um, what happened in parts of Germany and Central and Eastern Europe after the war. Germans, as you can imagine, were universally hated. You could pretty much do what you wanted to a German for a, for a while after the war, and nine times out of ten, you'd get away with it. So, for example, when the Soviets arrived in Berlin, they raped pretty much every woman they came across. In Czechoslovakia, there were whole communities of Germans who were taken out and, and shot en masse for no better reason than that they were Germans. I can give you an example of this. Um, it's one of the few examples, actually, where anybody was, was uh, brought to book for this. It was in a, a town called Prerov in Bohemia, where a local Czech militiaman stopped a train, which was filled with German people who were being expelled from the country. He stopped the train, he ostensibly to search it for, for former Nazis, but actually he took everybody off the train. And that night, he and his men shot 71 German men 120 women and 74 children, the youngest of which was only eight months old. So at the trial, when he was asked what, you know, at least to justify the, the, the shooting of the children, he replied, you know, after I'd killed their parents, what was I supposed to do with them? So this is the kind of thing which was happening after the war. There's a sort of unpleasant symmetry between actions like that and actions that actually took place 
during the war, which were carried out by Germans themselves, you know, by Nazis in, in Eastern Europe. Um, now, it has to be said that this symmetry was sometimes conscious, sometimes deliberate. Um, there was a, a, a sort of um, a movement when they gathered all these Germans together in various communities around Europe. They quite often did things like made them wear white armbands, for example, to identify them, just as Jews had been made to wear stars of David. They um, uh, were forced into ghettos, just as Jews had been during the war. And eventually, they were rounded up and put into internment camps, where they were treated with the same kind of brutality, sometimes consciously exactly the same kind of brutality that people imagined had happened to Jews in their internment camps during the war. Obviously, I have to be a bit careful when I talk about things like this because, of course, there's, no, there's absolutely no um, comparison between the Holocaust and what happened to Germans after the war. And moreover, um, it, it can be said that, that some of these Germans possibly deserved it. I mean, they certainly weren't guiltless. A lot of them had been quite brutal to their Polish and Jewish neighbours during the war. So, you know, it was seen as, as a just punishment. But it doesn't excuse the, the sort of indiscriminate way that these punishments were taken out. Because you know, there was no checking to see whether these particular Germans were Nazis or not. They, they were Germans and that was good enough. So there was a sort of casual culture of sadism, revenge after the war, which has produced some really quite horrible stories. I mean, some of them are in the book. Um, I, uh, I came across, for example... Um, stories of a, a, a camp for an internment camp for Germans in Kwodzko in Poland where the inmates had their eyes beaten out with rubber cudgels. In Potulica there were uh, Germans who were buried in liquid manure. There was a, a, a story even of um, one German man who was caught by a guard who, who found a toad, caught a toad and shoved it down this man's throat until he choked to death. I mean these are, these are the sort of things which were, were routinely done in some of these places. Um, I suppose the truly shocking thing about stories like that is not, is not so much that human beings are capable of that. I mean, that's been demonstrated throughout history. It's the fact that the authorities at the time took so, so little interest in it. They weren't interested in punishing anybody who was going to, who's going to be doing these things on Germans. I mean, in all the research that I did for my book, I came upon only very few examples where such sadism and such treatment of people was, was punished with anything more than a slap on the wrist. In other words, the authorities were complicit. They knew this was going on and they didn't care. And uh, some of them were quite open about this. For example, the, the Czech justice minister um, openly said in lots of speeches that uh, you know, there was no such thing as a good German there are only bad Germans and even worse ones. Um, he, uh, he also famously repeated again and again that the German nation, the entire German nation, had been responsible for Hitler. So the entire German nation should be punished, regardless of whether they were Nazis or not. And one could argue, and some Germans frequently do argue, uh, that uh, you know, Germany is still being punished today for what happened during the war. Um, you know, while they themselves have tried to move on, the rest of the world won't let them forget it. And 
You know, we only, only need to open our own tabloid newspapers to see that you know, occasionally um, the Second World War is being rerun um, on a daily basis. Right. I've talked a little bit about revenge. I've talked a bit about uh, the conditions of Europe after the war. What I haven't talked about is all of the continuing violence which was going on all around the continent. I mean, while we might like to think that uh, the war stopped dead in its tracks in May 1945, it certainly didn't. In Greece, for example, there was a civil war which continued until 1949. In Poland, uh, the sort of border of Poland and Ukraine, there was another sim, uh, civil war which continued into the late 1940s. Um, and then, of course, you have the, the fight against Soviet domination in Eastern Europe. There were still partisans hiding out in the forests, fighting the Soviets, until the mid-1950s. So there's plenty of war still going on. It's just not called the Second World War anymore. It's called something else. Um, I, I don't really have to, I'd like to be able to tell you more about them, but... Uh, Buy my book, and you can, you can read about it in there. Um, what I would like to do, though, quickly, is to give you um, an example which shows perhaps why these wars are still continuing around Europe and for years after 1945. It's a story that I came across when I was um, researching the, the war in Italy. It it's, involves a, a group of partisans in 1943... They're hiding out in the Alps, uh, in the foothills of the Alps, in the forests. And they're a relatively new brigade in 1943. They're a, they're a communist brigade. So as such, they are engaged in fighting against not only the Germans, but also against their fellow countrymen who are, you know, that part of Italy is still run by the fascist Italians. So they're fighting the fascists, they're fighting the Germans. They've only just started doing it, though, so they're quite inexperienced. And one day a group of these partisans came across these two German soldiers who were walking through the woods. They, they weren't on patrol or anything. They were, they were actually, they'd come from the Eastern Front and they were, they were there convalescing. They had no idea that the woods were crawling with partisans and they'd just gone for a walk and been captured. Now, these partisans, as you can imagine, are really chuffed with themselves. They've got some prisoners. It's their first major thing they've done. And uh, so they, they take them away to, to the, the rest of the partisans but then they've got to work out what on earth they're going to do with these guys. They can't very well keep them prisoner. They haven't got any facilities for that. Um, and they're constantly on the move. They can't really take them with them as well because well, they, they just slow them down. So they decide that the only thing they can do with these German soldiers is to take them aside and shoot them. So they all draw lots to see who's going to have this gruesome task. And... Um, that's where the problems begin, because the, the, the ones who got the short straw steadfastly refused to do it. They didn't want to shoot them. I mean, it's quite a gruesome thing to do anyway. But they had ideological reasons for it, too. Because while all this debate had been going on, they'd, they'd been uh, interrogating these German soldiers, and they discovered that during peacetime, these were ordinary working German men. Surely it wasn't right for communists to be shooting their fellow workers... And not only that, but they were also conscripts. They hadn't volunteered for the army. So, in a way, weren't they also you know, fellow victims of the capitalist uh, system? So they had a great big debate all over again, and they um, had another vote, and they decided, OK, we'll let them go. So this could have been 
a really refreshing story of sort of uh, you know, solidarity between enemies or, or something, were it not for what happened next. Because, of course, these German soldiers, the first thing they did when they went back to their um, headquarters was to tell um, the senior officers exactly what had happened, where the partisans were, and three days later, the entire German army descended on this bit of forest, conducted a, a massive sweep, and the partisans only just got away by the skin of their teeth. So they never made that mistake ever again. From then on, whenever they caught any prisoners, they shot them straight away out of hand. Now, what this story demonstrates is that the war, the way we look at the war is, is possibly a little bit too simplistic. I mean, there were lots of things going on here. These partisans were not only fighting a war of national liberation against the Germans. They were also fighting a civil war against their fellow Italians, who were fascists. And they're fighting a class war against the forces of international capitalism. And as the story makes clear, they're not always sure which one of these wars should take precedence. Sometimes they get it wrong. After 1945, of course, things become a bit simpler. The Germans are out of the way. The fascists have been defeated. But the class war, that's not been won. So the uh, Italian communists carry on fighting this class war until the end of the 1940s. There's still plenty of violence, and, and some of it uh, you know, large, organized violence going on in Italy in the 1947, 1948. And in fact, there was still plenty of communist terrorism in Italy right up into the 1980s. So um, there you go. Um, the way we look at the war is really far too simplistic. There are some people, like these Italian partisans, who are they're not fighting for national liberation, they're fighting the class war. There are other people, for example, the Ukrainian partisans, or in Croatia, the Ustashas, we're not fighting against the Germans either. They're fighting for ethnic purity, for a sort of national, na ethnic nationalism. Um, and then, you know, there are some people, plenty of people, who aren't even bothered about the Germans at all. For them, the main enemies are the Soviets. Always have been. It was the Soviets who invaded the Baltic states at the beginning of the war, for example, not the Germans. So, you know, these people, just because the Germans have surrendered in, 1940, in eight, uh, May 1945, there's no reason to stop fighting. They still have plenty to fight for, and they carry on doing it for years after the war's over. That was Keith Lowe speaking at Malmesbury Town Hall during our History Weekend. And as I mentioned before, he is the author of Savage Continent, Europe in the Aftermath of World War II, published by Penguin in 2012. Now, if you came to our History Weekend and enjoyed it, or you couldn't make it but wished you had, then you might well be interested in two-day events we're holding in March at Bristol's M-Shed. On Saturday the 15th, it's our Vikings Day, and then on Sunday the 16th, we're hosting a First World War Day. On both occasions, you'll get a chance to hear talks from a range of experts, and you'll also enjoy a buffet lunch on each day. For more information and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events and we hope to see many of you there. Before we go, I'd like to quickly mention that our January issue is now on sale. We're kicking off the new year with Charles I, and asking whether the downward spiral to civil war was really all his fault. 
Also, we're taking a look at the early months of 1914, we're discovering Roman luxury, and we're reflecting on Nelson Mandela. Look out for our January issue in all good news agents and digitally. So that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll try and read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can also keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter at History Extra for Twitter. Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus do make sure to visit our website historyextra.com for all the latest history news, features, galleries, blogs, quizzes and more. Next week, we'll be talking about 1914 with Mark Bostridge and considering the historical Jesus with Reza Aslan. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Malmesbury and produced by Jack Fletcher. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.